It's a ceremony that goes back nearly a thousand years, based on the belief that it's a divine right for kings and queens to reign over their people. The coronation of a British monarch, in the words of Winston Churchill, is an occasion which the oldest are proud to have lived to see and the youngest will remember all their lives, as he described the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953, who became the longest reigning British monarch with more than 70 years on the throne. So, waiting in the succession line, the Queen's eldest son became Britain's oldest and longest serving heir. Born Charles Philip Arthur George on the 14th of November 1948, he was four when his mother was crowned and 20 when she formally made him Prince of Wales. At 73, he automatically became King Charles III on the death of his mother last year. Buckingham Palace said his coronation on May the 6th would reflect the monarch's role today and looks towards the future while being rooted in long-standing traditions and pageantry. Those behind Britain's 40th coronation in Westminster Abbey, first used by William the Conqueror in 1066, have said they want a smaller, shorter and less lavish ceremony. Not my king! But what challenges await King Charles as he reigns over an entirely new generation of people in the UK and across the Commonwealth realms? We are moving on. Alongside what many consider a fractured royal family surrounded by scandal and controversy. We'll put some of the questions to one of the UK's most renowned royal biographers and historians. Robert Lacey talks to Al Jazeera. Robert Lacey, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Now, King Charles's coronation is bound to bring up the comparisons between King Charles and Elizabeth II. What are the British monarchy's main challenges, do you think, since the passing of Elizabeth? It seemed impossible for anybody to succeed Elizabeth. I mean, she'd been with us 70 years. And um, I think we saw at her funeral the intense sense of history passing and the dedication that people felt to her. I think one of the things I've noticed since King Charles has come to the throne, how people who didn't have much time for Prince Charles really have increased regard for King Charles III. I think he's impressed a lot of people. I think the first thing that struck people was in his very first broadcast, he conveyed feeling. He conveyed real grief at the death of his mother without going over the top. And we forgot that for 70 years we'd had a monarch who never really radiated feeling. I mean, that came partly from her view of the monarchy as having to be neutral. But she was a shy and withdrawn person. And we've now got a more committed monarch. And that's going to make a change. Now, you mentioned um, Queen Elizabeth's ability not to show her feelings or her views. Obviously, with Prince Charles as he was, we know a lot about what he, f he felt about things. How is he going to be able to, to contain that and stay within the constitutional boundaries? Well, he was asked his question, of course, and his brisk reply was, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I know the difference between being a prince and um, uh, a king. And I think he's actually shown it. What about the, the differences between the UK and the Commonwealth now compared with what they were when Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne? I think in the course of Elizabeth's reign, no less than 47 or 48 colonies became independent countries. It's quite extraordinary that the United Nations, I think there are still 190 members or so, and not many people realise that more than a quarter of them were former British possessions which have now become um, independent. There's one remnant in that field you raise about the Commonwealth. Um, one of the anomalies is that um, 
King Charles is not just king of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, he's also actually king of Canada and king of Australia and king of New Zealand. And already Barbados has said, thank you very much. We're happy to stay in the Commonwealth, but we really don't need um, an elderly white lady or an elderly white gentleman as our head of state. I think that will be something we will see in his reign, that countries like Jamaica will say, we're happy to stay in the British orbit, we're happy to be in the Commonwealth, but no, we actually don't want you to remain our king. Whether Australia or Canada feel the same we, remains to be seen. And just to go back to what you said about what people feel about him now, I mean, there have been obviously a rash of polls to do with the, the coronation, and one of them has said that one in three Britons, well, sorry, only three in ten Britons think the monarchy is very important and it's the lowest proportion on record. Um, that's the National Centre for Social Research. But then, conversely, there was a poll uh, by YouGov for The Times which found that the King's positive ratings are rising. So uh, how, do the, how do you kind of interpret the polls at the moment as of showing that people are kind of perhaps more indifferent in general to the monarchy, but are kind of given, you know, perhaps more positive about Charles now that he's there? Well, monarchy retains its um, um, remnants of um, authoritarian power. If you go back a thousand years in history, there's lots of things in British history to regret, not least slavery and colonialism, and the monarchy was identified with those. So it's not surprising that people today should feel ambivalent about it and also that um, the British people, um, not always demonstrative, should take some sort of pride in saying, well, we don't care, let, couldn't care less. But I think the, the public affection shown on public occasions belies that. I mean, obviously, this man is not elected. The monarchy is not elected. The closest you get to an election for a head of state is something like a coronation or a jubilee. And if you arrange a jubilee or a coronation and nobody comes out to cheer, well, that's like a negative vote in the, in the ballot box. Certainly last year with the jubilee, we had this very interesting moment in the jubilee when everybody was gathered just here at St Paul's Cathedral, all inside, um, great atmosphere of reverence, and along comes Boris Johnson, who was then the Prime Minister, and gets booed. Now, I thought that was marvellous, not because I got anything against Boris Johnson, but it reminded us of how the British system works, that the monarchy is there for what we agree about and the politics is there for what we disagree about. Under the Queen, the monarchy became a sort of a, almost a brand, didn't it? And it's, there's been an estimate putting the, the capital value of the UK monarchy as a business at £67.5 billion. What symbols do you think Charles might bring into it to, to kind of to perpetuate the, the brand idea of the, the monarchy? Well, I think um, this identification with green causes, he was one of the first people to, to, to cotton onto that and see the value of it. I think we will see him going abroad much more once the coronation period is over. He's already had one incredibly successful tour um, to Europe. The government decided they wanted him to start in Europe. He couldn't go to France because of the trouble there, so he went to Germany. And he stood up in front of the Bundestag, the parliament, and spoke for what? Who knew he could speak German? I mean, it reminded us that, of course, we have a German royal family. But he stood there, he spoke German, he spoke English, he switched from one to the other. He's, he's very accomplished and holds himself well. And I think in that way, he can be um, a, a spokesman for Britain abroad that many people will 
Well, the Germans gave him half an hour and a standing ovation. So if he gets that everywhere, it'll be good for brand Britain, I think. And just to go back to the, to the, the man himself, tell, tell us a bit about his character and, and how he's ended up being the man he is, his upbringing and the, the influences that have shaped him. We've been reminded a lot on recent television programmes about what a miserable childhood he had, being forced to be um, a hearty British public schoolboy. Um, he called his famous, he called his school Colditz in Kilts, because it was in Scotland, Gordonston, and it reminded him of the famous prisoner of war camp, or notorious prisoner of war camp, Colditz. So there's an example of him being quite outspoken about, really, thinking that his parents didn't give him the education he, he wanted. So I think, um, yes, outspokenness will be one of his, um, you know, one of the ingredients he brings to the brand. Um, and, of course... Um, he, he does, in the future, have personal, private um, issues to handle, um, his relationship with Harry and Meghan, for example. One of the things we should bear in mind is that um, 30, 40 years ago, there are a lot of people who didn't think he'd make a suitable king, that um, there was the scandal of his breakup of his marriage with Diana. Um, Camilla, now a beloved queen, was called a wicked woman, even by Elizabeth II herself. So he's shown in his lifetime how he can turn things around. So he has got the ability to influence events. Just to pick up on a couple of the things you mentioned there, that uh, relationship, the fractious relationship with the sons um, and the, bet between them, how is that going to be managed, do you think? And, and what, what are the sort of signals coming from what we've seen with the coronation and the recent events with the books and the court cases and so on? Well, there are two ways of looking at all of this. Um, you know, why, why is Harry coming to the coronation at all if he's so against the monarchy? Why is um, Meghan in America uh, producing young princes and princesses and insisting that they should be, her children should be called princes and princesses if they're against the monarchy? The way in which both this couple have, have television contracts worries Charles and particularly William. I think there are two aspects in the future to the possibility of the rift getting brought together. Charles would clearly like to end the rift with Harry. I mean, it reflects on him as a father in terms of his brand, but also as a father. He, he wants the boy back. Um, and he'd like to see his grandchildren. I think William feels differently. We know William feels differently. The brothers fell out, basically, because of their different views of Meghan. Um, William thought she was bad for the monarchy, too big for her boots. Um, Harry felt that his wife was being attacked. Now, here you have two brothers. William standing by his destiny, what he stands for. Harry standing by his wife. Now, in any family set up, uh, that, those are issues that don't get resolved easily. And, and I wouldn't see the Harry-William rift getting solved for a long time. And also to go back to what you said about King Charles, uh, how he was viewed a number of years ago, when, when there was the, the, the biography, the, the two-hour documentary that he did for um, Jonathan Dimbleby, and, and it was in part in retaliation, wasn't it, for the, for the, the Diana, her, her true story book that had been done in 1992. I mean, when he admitted adultery in the Dimbleby interview, what, what was the reaction? Remind us how, how that went and, and why people were so, so cross. Well, it's extraordinary to look back now, um, 20, 30 years, to the... 1990s. I mean, the Queen herself called 1992 her Annus Horribilis, and that did refer to the fact that her son was in the process of committing adultery, uh, admitted ad committing adultery. 
it was, it was like the times of Henry VIII. I mean, the British monarchy was mired in scandal. Um, there was Diana saying there were three of us in the marriage, and everybody knew the third one was Camilla. How do you think... I mean, you, you, you said he, how do you, he's, it's extraordinary that he has turned it round, that we're in a situation where he's now king, his, you know, Camilla is to be queen, and he's got everything that he wants. How, how did he manage to get from the position where he was at one point... His, his popularity rating was 4%, wasn't it, in, in the middle of all this? How did he move from that to, to, to where we are now? Was it just times have changed? Partly. Um, I mean, but when Diana said, you know, she doubted whether he was suitable to be king, people listened to that. Um, and um, I think the turnaround is um, a lot to do with um, his own resilience, keeping going. Um, it's a lot to do with people seeing more of Camilla and appreciating her more than they did. But I think, to be honest, it's also that we, the Brits, want it to work. I mean, uh, we like to like our king. We like to admire the Queen, uh, as she now is. But only a few years ago, Charles himself was saying, well, don't worry, folks, she's never going to be called Queen. We're just going to call her Queen Princess Consort or something like that. Um, uh, so uh, it, it's a two-way process here. Um, uh, and, and you see it when people come out on the streets um, and, and cheer outside, outside the palace. Tell me about the, the, the royal family generally. Why is it, do you think, because you've studied other royal families, haven't you, why is it that the UK's one is the most recognised in the world? And how is it different from, from other royal families? It's remarkable how many monarchies remain in Europe um, and in countries that many of us would consider quite grown up, the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark. Um, we think of them as rather more intelligent and rational than us. And look, they keep monarchies, but they put their monarchs on bicycles. And in fact, there's not a single monarchy in Europe that has a coronation. Um, every new monarch comes in, makes a modest um, avowal to the parliament at the time and then gets on with the job. We're the only ones who, who, who keep pomp and ceremony. Um, I think it's partly because we do it so well and we enjoy it. And, it's, and waving the Union Jack is, is, is part of uh, the British persona. But, but that does depend on a respect for the monarchy, the feeling that although we pay taxes from our pocket for the monarchy, they're working hard on our behalf. And uh, so far, that is the case. And on that question of, of the money, one of the things that has come up relatively recently in the, in the Paradise Papers leak was that... Uh, the Prince of Wales' private estate had invested millions of pounds in offshore funds and, and companies. How difficult is it if, the, you know, the monarchy is not perceived to be transparent with its finances for that relationship with the kind of the public purse to, to be maintained? Well, transparency is very important, which is why um, one of the first things uh, King Charles did was to say to a researcher who wanted to investigate the links between the royal family and slavery, OK, come in, you can look at all the papers. That's... Uh, he's got that right. When it comes to money, he is walking a fine line. I mean, he says he wants to slim down the monarchy. He hasn't really slimmed down the number of private estates that the, the royal family control and which he um, enjoys living in. I mean, the monarchy costs me, as a British taxpayer, £152 a year. I mean, our taxes contribute 80 to £90 million. Pounds. That's for a population of... 40 million taxpayers say. So there we are, a couple of quid each. I consider that good value for money. I think a lot of people elsewhere do. But they've got to be careful. Um, the pound in the pocket 
can very easily be a grievance that would uh, sour what people feel in a positive way at the moment. And, and on that, that issue, I mean, you, you also alluded to the, the, some of the kind of areas where the monarchy's slightly less popular now, so in some Commonwealth countries they're less keen on having a, a king. How will King Charles address that issue of things like addressing the, the future of the Commonwealth and also, for example, you know, unity of, of the UK with, with Scotland's independence issues? Well, when the, um, the Prime Minister of Barbados was explaining their change of policy, she said, you know, young children in Barbados look up to the head of state, the very top of the pinnacle, and what did they see? In those days, they saw an elderly white lady, very gracious, but really a relic of history. And how could they aspire to that position? Now, that is one role that the head of state plays. It's a position in many countries that anybody can aspire to. Um, and if you're going to fill it with um, uh, a foreigner, uh, uh, perhaps even a foreigner who hasn't got the same skin colour as you, uh, hasn't got the same religious belief system as you, then um, that person is going to have to make very sure that they, I'm talking about King Charles in the future, that they really do represent um, the, the ordinary interests of people. And so I do think that a, a large number of the dozen or so Commonwealth countries are going to say in the future, you know, we, we like Britain, we like the Commonwealth, but that's history now to have a head of state. We should, we should choose our own head of state. And going back to your, what you mentioned about King Charles wanting to slim down the monarchy, how's that going so far? I mean, you mentioned he's not been uh, reducing the numbers of estates and things. What about uh, other members of the royal family? Are they, are they pushing back about it? We've heard um, uh, Princess Anne has, has done an interview just in the last day or so saying that she's not particularly happy with that idea. How do you think it's going to go? Well, Princess Anne, his sister, um, is well known for years as the hardest working member of the the royal family, and she's also known for being forthright and saying what she thinks. In 2012, for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, Prince Charles, as he then was, was allowed to have his wish that all the family on the balcony, all the uncles and cousins and aunts, should be wiped away. In, in, instead, they should just have the core royal family. And there they were, just six of them or so. And nobody liked it. And nobody liked it in the royal family. I mean, there was no Andrew or his family, there was no Anne either, there was no Edward. They were furious, um, and it's interesting that that experiment has never been repeated. And one of the results of the Harry Row has been that, finally, we have a definition of who goes on the balcony. It's not all royals um, in terms of blood, it's working royals. It's the dozen or so who actually get taxpayers' money for doing the job of going out, meeting the people, heading charities. I mean, one of the reasons Britain has such a thriving charity sector is because so many charities are headed by royal people and that brings the money um, and the enthusiasm in. So um, it's a question of the balance between the two. And how they interact with the, you know, the media has obviously been, always been very important and, and you mentioned Anne, a hard-working royal, so that's been a, a sort of the story there. But what about the scan... To go back to the scandals and some of the, the areas where they've, they've struggled with, with the media, do you think that the way the royal family has handled these things uh, has been right or have they had the wrong advice around them? What's the, what do you think has been the worst bit of it backfiring against them? It's a love-hate relationship. Um... And I think it's very interesting that Harry has taken a stand against it. All of these issues are going to get tested in court. Um, and I think in a year or so, the position will be clearer on this. 
Do you think the lawsuits are, are a good idea for Harry and Meghan, or do you think that will damage the relationship more, make it worse for them? Well, it certainly seems to have damaged the relationship inside the family. Harry has told us that um, the family, his father, told him definitely don't sue, and he has. That will have consequences. Um, but, um, you know, the fact that Harry is arguing there alongside Elton John and Hugh Grant, um, the, these are other folk heroes. So, um, the, you know, I think the sympathy for what they're saying... Uh, I think pe many people feel that the British press goes too far and um, their powers should be tested by a law case like this. In terms of the, the, the royal family, just to go back again to this, um, you know, potentially slimming down, is some of that motive to, to, sa to save money or is it just to save the brand? How do you see the, the reasons... What do you see the reasons behind it? When Charles pushed so hard for slimming down the royal family, um, I think he was thinking in terms of all the uncles and cousins of aunts, these Dukes of Kent and Gloucester and so on, whose names don't mean much to, to anybody. He obviously didn't expect that the core family, as he saw it in the future, he saw the future with himself and his sons and their offspring, he didn't expect that to get slimmed down with Harry and Meghan going into exile um, with all the ill-feeling that caused. That's a definite challenge for the future because the, 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 fa the royal family does have a role um, and there just aren't enough of them at the moment. We, we haven't yet touched on, on Andrew. That's, that's presumably a, a tricky one for, for Charles as well. I think Prince Charles has handled that very well. Um, so far as we understand, um, even during the Queen's reign, it was Charles and William who were insistent that Andrew should be kept out of the public eye. But um, when it comes to family occasions, he's part of the family. Um, and he at least has not gone as far as Harry in actually denouncing the family. Whatever Andrew has done um, or not done is a matter for the law courts. At least he's never turned on his family. Um, and at the end of the day, I think the family expect, and indeed the public expect of the family, for there to be unity. And that, that remains the, the, the issue when it comes to, to Harry and Meghan. And, and you were a historical consultant on, on some of the um, issues of the, of the Crown for, for Netflix. Has the Crown and other series like that caused the royal family more harm than good? The Crown has had two effects, um, like all television and media coverage. Um, we know it, it's, it's immensely increased... Um, uh, knowledge of the royal family and awareness. Um, and um, I'm a historical consultant, um, and I would say this, it's all historically true. The argument is not over whether the history is true or not, but whether it's the, the history that the royal family would like to see on screen. It's very interesting, the first few series were received quite benignly by Buckingham Palace. When it get, got into the 80s and 90s, and we're looking at Diana and Camilla and so on, suddenly um, the officials weren't so happy about seeing what had actually happened. And, of course, a whole generation of British youth were introduced to these stories they'd never heard of, but which were true. Um, and they therefore had to look at... Suddenly, Queen Camilla was no longer this benign lady with silver hair walking around with Prince Charles, um, and King Charles, as he's going to be. Um, they discovered a more racy past. And do you think that they have that there is an element where um, the royals have become almost a bit like celebrities, and that that's how people view them, and that, that, that they they miss the element of, you know, the other things that they do, the, 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 what you talked about, the charity work, and, and so on. Do you, do you think there's become a, a bit of a blending where they all end up just in the same boat for the 
for the viewers? That's the danger for the royal family in the future. They have to tread a fine line. The family certainly thought that Meghan was, was too much celebrity and not enough um, substance. Although, to, to, to be fair to her, she's very much dedicated to very important causes. And the fact that the royal family had a mixed-race member and has now cast her out or is perceived to have cast her out, that is not good. It's not good for the future and will have to be repaired in some way. Yes, do you think those allegations that she made of racism will, will continue to haunt them? Yes, I thought the, the allegations were unfair in the sense that she accused the royal family themselves of racism and Prince William went out of his way to deny that. But the fact that the, the media treated her in a racist way is undeniable. Charles was actually very close to, um, to um, Meghan. Apparently, he nicknamed her Tungsten because she was so tough, like Tungsten the metal, and he thought that was rather good for Harry. Well, she's perhaps proved a bit too tough, and that's clearly an issue in the future that will have to be resolved. What do you think the future is of, of the monarchy in the UK, or, or more broadly, the monarchy? Well, um, 100 years ago, I don't think people would have forecast there's still going to be a monarchy. And, in fact, um, current events show that it is not just a monarchy, but it's a thriving institution. Lord Mountbatten once said to me, monarchy is only as good as the people doing the job. So um, it's, not, it's not guaranteed. And, and the human fallibility of it is, is the challenge that it always has to face. Robert Lacey, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera.